0: When it comes to sex, let's be honest, we all have questions. Am I doing it right? Is it supposed to feel this way? Why don't I care about sex? And the big one, what is normal sex? Trust me, these are legit questions. So I found Dr. Jenny Skyler, sex therapist extraordinaire, to answer the questions we always wanted to ask but didn't. And she has some questions too, good ones. I'm Kim Kaplan, and this is the Modern Pleasure Podcast.
1: There are a few meds that actually can enhance sexual functioning. One of them is Wellbutrin Bupropion, which is an antidepressant. doesn't typically do much for anxiety, but it's a very stimulating antidepressant. Guess what it does? It works on dopamine among other things. And a lot of women will say that if on Wilbutrin they have much more rip-roaring orgasms. They're, they, just their whole kind of sexual circuitry seems dialed up a notch or two. Now that said, Wilbutrin works well for some people. It doesn't work well for lots of other people. But there's an antidepressant that doesn't block dopamine, that doesn't overstimulate serotonin or just put you know a wet blanket on the nervous system.
0: Well, good morning. It is morning for me anyway, very early morning. And uh, welcome to another edition of the Modern Pleasure Podcast with my residence expert, Dr. Jenny Schuyler, who um, is quickly she and I have become little compadres here with this podcast. And I'm so excited about the way things are developing. And um, she has a very interesting guest that she's bringing in Today, So I'm going to let you make this introduction because it sounds like you guys go go way
2: back. So who who are we going to talk to today and what are we talking about? Well, thanks, Kim. I'm excited to be here and for our developing relationship as well. Today's guest is a dear, dear friend of mine and colleague. And we have done other sort of pseudo podcast things like this before on SSRIs and sex today's podcast is Dr. Craig Heacock. He speaks for himself. He is a fantastic psychiatrist in Fort Collins, but that is not just what he does. What he really does is bring mental health to this country via his podcast, Back from the Abyss. Mm. And if you have not listened to Back from the Abyss, it is a fantastic, really informative very moving podcast on all things mental health, psychiatry, meds, alternative meds. And the gift that I think Dr. Craig really brings is a beautiful, unique lens to psychiatry because he really looks at it from an integrative lens. And he doesn't just do med distribution, he does therapy. Um, And he is the most compassionate (laughs) psychiatrist I have ever met, although I've met some of his friends, so they they are great, too. Um, <laughs> in terms of his more academic bio, he went to my alma mater, uh, Colorado College, and then has a MS in conservation biology and was at first a high school teacher and then moved on to do his doctorate, um, his MD at University of New Mexico and in his residency at Brown. Mm. And what's extra special and interesting is he was a co-therapist in the phase three trial of the MDMA assisted psychotherapy for severe PTSD, Wow, which is huge because hopefully MDMA it's been in the works for 20 years, maybe plus around trying to pass the FDA trials and get out here to the public for severe PTSD. So hopefully we'll learn about that today. Um, and he was also a participant in Rick Straussman's groundbreaking DMT study at the University of New Mexico. And the book is The Spirit Molecule. And there is a lot of utility around psychedelics and mental health that we can learn and hopefully implement. So Very I am cool. delighted and excited to bring my dear friend and colleague, Dr. That was Craig so Hino. sweet,
1: Jenny. Well, oh. hi.
2: Welcome.
1: Yeah, this is so fun. Good to meet you, Kim and Jenny. We go way back. So this is like old times, sitting down together.
0: So I'm just gonna start with how, it because obviously, if if you know our podcast, our pack, our podcast centers around uh, sex and uh, sexual awareness and and healthy sex, and so I'm curious to know where the correlation lies, and I know it does. Jenny's got that look on her face, like just wait. <laughs> So, well, I didn't talk about
2: his wife. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My wife's a sex therapist. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So
1: Yeah. She likes to call me junior sex therapist and I call her junior psychiatrist because <laughs> she, she has an exceptional knowledge of of medications and I know quite a bit about sex therapy.
0: Very cool. So uh, dig in. How do we start this conversation?
1: Psychiatric meds have, in general, they have two big problems. And this is across the board. Uh, If we look at all the categories of meds, what are the two big things that especially the most effective psychiatric meds do is they can have serious sexual side effects and they can cause weight gain. Mm. And those are often tied together because you can imagine um, one of the things that can put the brakes on your sexual mojo is weight gain, body image stuff. So it's very sad and ironic that the two leading side effects of so many meds we use, can squash people's sexuality and or lead to significant weight gain. So I think by necessity, I think good psychiatrists have to become very curious about their patient's sexual functioning and, you know, breaking that down into libido and arousal and orgasm and also ask a lot of questions. You know, I tried to, you know, always in the first session ask a number of questions about people's sexual functioning. One, just to sort of let people know that's a topic we're going to talk about. And just to let them know that um, I recognize that that's something they may have experienced in past psychiatric treatment, and that could happen in our treatment. And it's you know it's something I take very seriously. So, you know, if your OCD is 80% better, but you your arousal and orgasm circuitry is completely dead, I mean, is that a good deal? I mean, maybe not.
0: Well, I can definitely uh, attest to that because I... Um... Uh, used to be on an antidepressant uh, years ago, and that is exactly what happened. And what was interesting for me because I was a I was a radio personality, and I, I'm also diagnosed bipolar. At the time, I was diagnosed bipolar. Interesting,
2: I didn't I, know that, Kim.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, I got a story. But interestingly enough, um, I well, I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole other episode. But. Um. After, you know, it takes forever to find the right combination of meds that actually, you know, help you. And I think he put me on Soloft and that was horrible and, you know, all these different things. And I, and I went through a number of different doctors as well. But we finally landed on Depakote, which is an anti-epileptic. It's an epileptic uh, anti-seizure medication, right? But the weight gain, the just, I mean my being on the radio, you know, I wasn't that, you know, everything just, yeah, it just all kind of toned down everything, including my desire to have sex, all of it. And then just, you know, for and I think I was on this medication for 17 or 18 years. And so I definitely know how that feels. And unfortunately for me, Um, and, and what I like about you, uh, is that you treat both the meds and the, and the psychology of it, right? So you're a therapist, somebody that someone can talk to, and you're not just distributing meds. And my problem was I did have a therapist, but it wasn't about me as much as it was about the meds. It was more psychiatry, right? Um, and i and and the two did not gel well. It wasn't it, it was like the other one didn't really know how the other one was treating. It was just all over the place. And
2: it's a super common um intersection. It, you know it this actually brings up a great question for you, Craig. Do you think that you would have asked and followed up around people's sexual health and function in the same way you do if you didn't have a wife that was a sex therapist? And maybe that's a hard question because
1: you've always had a wife (laughs) a sex therapist. I think that's a complicated question because my residency program was very deeply psychotherapy Mm -hmm. oriented. And so, you know, we were instructed, encouraged, urged to jump into sexual functioning and sexuality like day one with everybody, you know. Interesting. one of my supervisors, he's always like sex and money, sex and money. He's like, that's, that's where the money is. He said, anytime <laughs> you can talk sex or money with your therapy patients with good stuff's going to come up. Yeah. So, but then, yeah, I think having a wife um, who's in that field and, you know, we talk all the time about complicated cases. And, um, and I also, you know, I take, do you know, I think most docs do, I hope, take do no harm very seriously. And, you know, I don't want, any of the treatments I recommend to make people worse, but sometimes they do. I mean, psychotherapy can make people worse. Surgery can make people worse. Meds can make people worse. You know, psychedelics can make people worse. So we want to be really mindful with people about cost benefit.
2: You know, one question I want to ask, but I'm going to say this with a caveat. I recognize there's not a one size fits all for all people, right? You kind of have to do trial and error sometimes. However, would you say that there are a handful of different meds that are the worst for sexual function. And then a handful of sexual meds that have the least impact if you were to categorize them in those two binary fields. Yeah. Is that a little well, bit
1: of a, yeah. Yeah. But first I think, you know, Jenny, you know, I've talked about this. I think on one of your Instagram live shows, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of breaking down sexual functioning into, you know, interest slash drive arousal yeah. and orgasm. And I think that might be a helpful way to think about psych meds. Um, Hold on, think- let's
2: back up. So so just for listeners, right? Drive and desire is the mental um, fuel to say yes, no, or maybe to sex, mm-hmm. right? Arousal is how our body gets turned on, all our nerve endings in our skin, in our genitals, the way our blood flows through our body, the heat that can come up, um, the excitement, right? That's a body excitement versus a mental And we're connected. We're a whole human. Um, But that's usually how I differentiate those things.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think those are helpful ways to break down the way psych meds can affect people. So let's start with drive interest, you know, libido, anything that blocks dopamine is going to potentially have a huge hit on that. And so one way to think about what does dopamine do sort of mentally, emotionally in the brain? Well, imagine what cocaine is like what adderall is like what crystal meth is like so when people use adderall or cocaine or crystal meth what happens they have way more libido they are very driven they're very focused they're very motivated they're very um pleasure driven
2: can you tell us another metaphor for listeners who have never tried adderall
1: meth cocaine (laughs) yeah i think um myself included yeah well you know um When you work in the psych ER and you see people come in who are high on meth or who are in a manic state, it's very difficult to tell the difference Difference Mm -hmm. because another way to think of that is if you think of all the symptoms of depression, low energy, low libido, um, sluggish brain, little speech, lack of engagement, apathy, anhedonia, crank all those the other way up to Mm -hmm. 11 and that's Mm -hmm. mania, that's meth, Mm -hmm. that's cocaine, Mm -hmm. that's high dose Adderall.
0: That's bipolar.
1: <laughs> that's bipolar, right? Yeah. Yeah, I know so, that feeling. <laughs> right. So, you know, um, the best med model of mania is high dose dopamine. So a bunch of cocaine, bunch of meth, bunch of Adderall. And so what happens when you use stimulants like that? Your libido for most people, your libido shoots sky high. And that's one of the- and that's true with mania, also, that most people and not everybody, but most people in a manic state are super sexual. Well, what happens if you do the opposite? You block those dopamine circuits. You get very low to no libido or drive. And so many psychiatric meds block dopamine. Um, notably, the anti- most of the antipsychotics do, but also this whole category of meds that we call the atypicals, which are used a lot for bipolar disorder, for treatment-resistant depression. That's things is, like-
2: that to, is that because these meds are intending to block the mania component of bipolar? Yeah.
1: Right. Gotcha. So the atypicals block dopamine just enough to keep people out of mania, is, is the theory. But they can block dopamine just enough to completely squash your libido or interest. And mm-hmm. so it's such a shame. But, you know, in psychiatry, the most powerful antidepressants, besides ketamine, that's a separate issue, but the most powerful antidepressants all block dopamine to some degree because those are in the atypical family and atypical antipsychotics. There's things like Abilify, Latuta. Mm-hmm. Um, Rexulti, those are very powerful depression meds and they tend to really squash especially in higher more kind of bipolar stabilizing doses they really squash libido mm-hmm. so so that's the first step um thinking about what kind of meds can can dial down libido think dopamine blockers think-
2: so craig can i can i jump in for a second then um two things that are striking to me as a as a listener one somebody might be like well the mania sounds great i'd have a high libido <laughs> imagine there's also consequences to that.
1: Yeah, because (laughs) too much of a good thing. You know, so what happens when people are fully manic or if they do too much cocaine or meth, they start wanting to have sex with people that they normally wouldn't. They put themselves in sexual situations that they never would before. They take sexual risks that could blow up relationships, that could put them in legal trouble, that could um, wreck them financially, so, or they go
0: out and buy a BMW that they can't afford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, there's a lot of mm-hmm. crazy yeah. things that it happen. It is totally
1: fascinating to me that mania tends to crank up um, religiosity and sexuality. So, mm-hmm. it's just, again, not true mm-hmm. for every person, every manic state, but it is interesting to see that people are often deeply kind of hyper-spiritual, hyper-religious, and hypersexual.
0: Isn't that interesting? I never yeah. thought
1: about that. Yeah.
2: That's a whole, nother podcast, then, that's and a whole other podcast than a constructing mania because there's probably yeah. a spiritual underpinning to that. Yeah. So if you take away the meds, if if you don't want the meds like Abilify, that are very stabilizing for bipolar, but also block the dopamine, what do you suggest instead? I mean, that's
1: that's such a complicated question. Yeah, because sure. I I would hate for someone to be listening to this, you know, who's on an atypical. And think, oh wait, I'm not having sexual drive, or I'm having libido issues. I'm just going to stop it and try something else. Like that, you know, to come off one of those meds is a very big decision, and you yeah. really need to scaffold it with other kinds of strategies. But it would be something, you know, anybody's listening who's on one of these dopamine blockers. It's an important thing to talk about with your doc if you're having sexual drive issues, because that's a likely culprit. Or just that, that said, you know, Jenny, you know even better than me that libido is an extremely complicated topic and and there's so many things that can you know touch your sexual brakes and accelerator
2: totally and and that's what i wanted to share real quick is i have a client for instance i have plenty of clients um on different meds but one in particular who has been on abilify for the past few months and it's life changing for her mania and she feels so stable and so happy and finally like The stability she feels she's so happy Um, and the gateway into her pleasure and and to her saying yes is not necessarily from an inherent inner drive, right? That that part is a little bit more muted or a lot more muted. But she trusts that once she's there with her husband and that he is touching her, that she does wake up. Mm -hmm. So she says, you know, and and she does. Um, she's lucky that way, right? Her body is still responsive um, to his touch and to her toy, and she still has orgasm. And so, you know, her yes is not from a place of internal enthusiasm. Her place, mm-hmm. her yes is from a place of, all right, like, I know that, you know, 20 minutes in, I'll be like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Just speaking of Abilify for a second, Abilify is actually the perfect example of this topic because. At very low doses of Abilify stimulates dopamine. Very low doses of, of Abilify can make people hypersexual, can make them manic, can mm. make make them literally be as out of control sexually as someone who's in full-blown mania. High doses of Abilify block dopamine. So as you go from low dose um, Abilify to medium dose to high, you can go from um, complete hypersexuality to kind of normal range libido to complete blockade just well, by what's happening at the dopamine receptor, well,
0: that's interesting. You would think that it would be the other way around.
1: I know it's a strange, yeah, it's a strange, it's called a partial agonist, but, yeah, depending on the concentration of the receptor, it can stimulate it or block it. Um, wow, so so, so those are probably, hijacked, yeah, yeah, so those then. are probably the main class of meds, you know, all the dopamine blockers that can affect interest libido desire,
2: and SSRIs are in that too.
1: Yeah, that, well, that's interesting. And Jenny, you and I talked about that on a prior broadcast. What but, is that? Um, what SSRIs. So SSRIs, oh, SSRIs are is. infamous for um, causing orgasm delay or orgasm difficulty. That's that's probably their number one side effect.
0: Can you give so, an example of what SSRIs are in case somebody doesn't yeah, know what that means? So these
1: are serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These are things like Prozac, which mm. is Lexapro, which is escitalopram, Zoloft, which is sertraline, Um. These meds very commonly cause orgasm, delay, or difficulty, or even anorgasmia. But a question that comes up a lot, again, Jenny and I explored this before, is can they decrease libido or interest? And that's actually a very interesting, complicated question. Because for people who who are hindered in their libido by obsessional anxiety, SSRIs can actually in, in, increase libido. Let's say you have terrible body dysmorphia or scrupulosity ocd or harm ocd or you have some sort of anxiety disorder that's making you not want to connect physically that if you could dial that down that could actually improve your desire but then there's um a group of people who they're and this is often women not always but often women whose primary driver of their libido is kind of a self-soothing uh anxious attachment kind of um slash neuroticism and so they seek out their partner their drive is they're using sex as a comforting self-soothing mechanism and so some of those people get on ssris and they're just their baseline anxiety is dialed down and so they're they don't need to seek out their partner as much to self-soothe or to kind of co-soothe their and so the partner might experience that or the the patient is huh i just don't have as much interest in sex it must be the lex well yes but it's, again, the, the, these um, questions, these always bring up, I think, interesting discussions with people. Like, well, tell me about, like, what is your baseline drive? Like, what is the driver? Because, you know, we think of sex drive as a thing, like you you want it or you don't, but there's so many things that can lead you to want to have sex. And if it's, if it's anxiety-driven, like, oh, I don't feel right, I need to connect physically with my partner and even orgasm with him or her, yeah, then SSRIs could dial that down.
2: It's a great um, question because I find that those people where their drive is based on needing the validation from their partner, either as co-soothing or just to kind of check that box that they're still desirable, um, usually deflect or have denial that that's not my drive, that's not my reason for wanting sex. I just like sex, and we'll do, you know. And so I think there is a. Unpacking of that to also find reasons for multiple choice reasons for sex and to allow it to be a place of selfishness for your own pleasure and orgasm, um, especially when the co-soothing piece gets dialed down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about
0: anti-anxiety medications like Xanax or?
1: Mm. Um, it's just where I was headed next. Oh, good because yeah, so if so we go here here down go down the sexual train tracks, so we start with them um, desire. Now let's move to arousal. Your know, the your sexual circuitry, if you will. Um, what can dial that down? Benzodiazepines for sure, and that's things like cl- clonben, clonazepam, Xanax, alprazolam, Ativan, lorazepam, um, and not surprisingly they have a very similar mechanism of action to alcohol what does alcohol do to sexual functioning not help it at all you know if you drink too much you can have problems um, with all facets of your sexual functioning but for sure with arousal Um, because what the benzodiazepines do in alcohol is they just dial down the nervous system it's like putting kind of a warm heavy blanket on the nervous system which is what you want
0: are you talking about a combination of both, or just? I mean,
1: no, they both do the same thing. So, essentially. Al-
0: so alcohol on its own, you're saying, isn't uh, isn't going to help in the arousal department?
1: No, I mean, you you could imagine where it might help with willingness. If you're someone who, you know, I've had patients say the only way I can have sex with my partner is to get drunk. <laughs> <Which> is, yeah, <laughs> I mean, sad. Just sad for different reasons. You know, there's a million different reasons that could drive that. No, but what I'm saying is that benzodiazepines and alcohol through very similar mechanisms dial down everything in the nervous system. It's like everything. You Interesting. Know. But
2: then hypothetically, because it's, you have two highly anxious people and they're trying to connect and let's say they haven't, I, this is somebody from yesterday, right? They are struggling to just get back into the bedroom together. It's been a long, long time. And they're very anxious about it. There's some body dysmorphia. There's a lot of high-level anxiety. In that case, a glass of wine, a margarita would dial down the nervous system and that activation, yeah. maybe just I mean, it's sort of like a spectrum, like you were describing of Abilify. Like there's different doses yeah. do different things. Yeah. Could this in that instance, I'm not trying to advocate for alcohol as a crutch, or to <laughs> have alcohol every time you have sex as a way to do this, but in those cases with high activation is turning down the nervous system then possibly helpful to just like walking into the bedroom.
1: Well, I think you make basically what you're saying is, you know, there's a difference between a medicine and a poison. That's the dose, you know, is Mm -hmm. intermittent. Like If someone says, Oh, I use a little bit of lorazepam now and then to help me relax and feel better in my body. So I can have sex. Great. Or a glass or two of wine. Fine. I guess what I'm talking more is about daily chronic use of Mm -hmm. benzodiazepines and or alcohol is going to crush sexual functioning Mm -hmm. um yeah. Cause
0: I was going to say some of the best sex <clears throat> I've ever had is when I've been wine tasting all day <laughs> and I come home and I'm ready <laughs> Yeah, and I also suffer from anxiety. So I know for me, I don't take Xanax on a daily basis at all, but for me, you know, I've got such ruminations in my head of so many different things, you know, whether it's work related or just straight up out of nowhere. Um, It helps me to get rid of all of that and actually focus on my husband or, you know, getting into that place where where I want to be and not distracted. Um, So, boy, you know, the conversations today, what I'm getting is there is no simple answer.
1: No. I think what you're describing, Kim, is, you know, if your nervous system is, you know, humming along at 5,000 RPM, that to dial it down with some wine or even a little benzodiazepine, so you can kind of be more in your body, more embodied, more connected to your partner. Fine, like that. That's that's not what I'm talking about. Really, when I talk about alcohol right. and benzos, is, I'm talking about people who use them daily, regularly, compulsively.
2: So say something then daily, regularly. Even if we just say alcohol for a moment, what is there a difference then in your mind of the one or two glass of wine every night couple? cocktail couple versus the whole six pack or obviously in the higher higher doses it's very clear to clear red flag it's maybe being used to fill a void or you know block them from intimacy yeah but is there a difference in the dosage even if it's every day
1: yeah i think and there is also a huge age component Mm. you know i'll just i'll speak for men (laughs) not that i speak for all men but i'll speak for men you know men in their 20s i think could you know have 12 beers and three milligrams of Xanax and a clonopin and get an erection and have what they would call enjoyable sex. They might not remember it, but they could come. You know, men in their 40s, 50s and older, if they have three or four beers, they may not be able to get an erection. And if they get an erection, they might not be able to keep it. Because, you know, we as we get older, we're just way our bodies just are way less resilient to whatever sleep deprivation, Xanax, Adderall. Um, vodka, and so you know the kind of um, the kind of substance use that might be extremely well tolerated in your twenties might completely shut down sexual functioning, say for men in their fifties.
2: Is that an, is that because of cardiovascular function or because of testosterone changes?
1: Yeah, it could be because of testosterone, but I think in general, um, as men age, their vasculature takes a huge hit, much even much more than women you know, estrogen is very vasoprotective. Um, estrogen helps women have very you know, supple, um, stretchable blood vessels and men don't have much estrogen, most men. So men's vasculature by, you know, the, their forties, fifties is often taken a real hit, especially if they haven't treated their bodies well. So they're already at risk of, of um, you know, erection problems. And then we know one of the things that, that alcohol does is it causes peripheral nerve damage and so you know extreme example are chronic alcoholics who have what we call per- peripheral neuropathy where they lose feeling in their hands and feet and they have chronic sort of buzzing pain and um, that's that's an extreme example but that's even for you know daily drinkers that's happening to to men it's happening to women too but i think it's it gets more dramatic in men because of the sort of mechanics of the penis that you know, if men are drinking regularly into their 40s and 50s, like many of them, probably because of vasculature effects and also because of peripheral um, neuron damage, their, if you will, their kind of plumbing slash electrical stimulation system it just doesn't work. So, again, so it could be where, you know, the person's thinking, gosh, I used to have four drinks and I was all fired up and now two drinks and I, I can't even function sexually.
2: Yeah. You know, th- th- if you don't have the sensation in your fingers, the penis is similar to that, mm-hmm. you know, of, of your hands. I don't know if you you've done an episode on just alcohol and sex on Back from the Abyss, but that would be great to like yeah. more deeply unpack. Craig, we asked originally the med question best and worst for sexuality. Um, we kind of went on a bunch of different tangents. So I want to come back to that before we move over to. Psychedelics. Anything mm-hmm. else to say in terms of best or worst meds? Yeah.
1: So maybe one way to think of that is you really, if you can, you want to avoid too much dopamine blockade. Mm-hmm. You want to avoid too much serotonin stimulation, and you want to avoid things that just put a warm, wet blanket over the nervous system. So what can people do instead? So, um, so there are there are a few meds that actually can enhance sexual functioning. One of them is Welbutrin, Bupropion, which is an antidepressant. It doesn't typically do much for anxiety, but it's a very stimulating antidepressant. Guess what it does? It works on dopamine, among Mm. other things. And um,
0: And that's Welbutrin, you said? Welbutrin,
1: yeah. A lot of women will say that on Welbutrin, they have much more rip-roaring orgasms. Just their whole kind of sexual circuitry seems dialed up a notch or two. Now that said, well, butrin works well for some people. It doesn't work well for lots of other people. So, if you size one size
2: does not fit all, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but there's they no.
1: Yeah, but there's an antidepressant that doesn't block dopamine, that doesn't overstimulate serotonin, or just put you know a wet blanket on the nervous system. Um, ketamine, which is now increasingly used in psychiatry, I do a lot of ketamine treatment in my office, mostly IV, but also intramuscular. Ketamine does not affect sexual functioning at all. Um, but what it does, it very powerfully moves the needle on depression, and depression squashes sexual functioning at every stage. So I, you know, you could argue that ketamine is a uh, sexuality enhancer, not because it's because of direct actions, but because it's such a powerful depression med. Or similarly for PT, PTSD, same thing.
2: Now I'm going to make a comparison to Abilify in terms of that spectrum of dosage. And I know that with ketamine, you can take it different ways. You said IV, IM, and I know there's lozenges out there. Um, is there a different type of patient who would benefit from a different type of distribution of ketamine?
1: Yeah. Let me give, can I back up for one sec? Yes. wouldn't want listeners to just think like of all the psychiatric meds, we got Welbutrin, which could enhance and then there's cadmium. because there, there are other ones too, like lamotrigine, lamictal, which is a really amazing depression med, has no sexual side effects in the vast majority of people. Great. So there are other options too. But I think, again, if listeners are are on meds and having sexual functioning issues um, in general, that you can think about that that the dopamine, serotonin, you know, over inhibition of the nervous system, and there are other options. But a lot of um, these
0: meds you're talking about are they strictly for? like a clinical depression diagnosis or can they also be used for bipolar because that's a whole different animal right because yeah. of the manic
1: yeah well i would argue that three of the very best meds for bipolar disorder would be lithium lamotrigine and ketamine none of those have sexual side effects in most people so that that's lovely i mean lithium has other side effects right but but um yeah so the three the three best bipolar meds really Don't have sexual dysfunction, which is great.
2: My
0: doctor did not put me on any of those.
2: (laughs) <laughs> Kim, did your doctor talk about sexual functioning as no. a side effect at all? No. Okay. And we you probably, never... as a patient, didn't know to ask necessarily.
0: Well, no. And and just really quick, you know, my journey started at a very young age and uh, went through a number of doctors on and off medication. And one of the reasons why most people with bipolar get off medication is because they miss that manic. You know, that is part, that is part of their personality for me, you know, being on the radio and being super up and and on um m- my best shows were when i was on a manic high but um so when you get to that point where you just don't have that you know i just felt like a rock and and so that's why i would go off the drugs until i found a doctor that put me on depakote depakote seemed to have a nice balance And I didn't feel like I was, you know, a piece of wood just sitting there not being able to, you know, interact with anybody. Um, It's an
2: interesting question around um, a spectrum. Like I think about all humans on the bipolar spectrum at the very edges are, you know, the harder cases where med management is probably super supportive. But do we all vacillate between excited and charismatic and low and a little apathetic sure that's really normal um i think it's subjective it's maybe sometimes it's objective but sometimes it's just subjective of like where is that line of mania that's potentially too grandiose or dangerous i'm gonna go out and have sex with you know 10 different people tonight and blow up my relationship as you were saying craig level of vacillation versus like I don't know what you were experiencing, Kim. You might have just been in the high of being on the radio and in that performative state and, like, fueled. Well,
0: I think I for know. me it was the the behavior that I demonstrated at a much younger age before I ever got into radio. Now, my grandfather was severely bipolar, and so there was a lot of hereditary talk, you know, and so I think they felt like because I was displaying some of these behaviors and my grandfather was severely Uh, bipolar I mean you know and back then they didn't really know how to treat it except with shock therapy and all of this other stuff and so I think it was more of you know my mom's concern about I think we need to get you to a doctor so in my early 20s they were taking me um, to uh, a psychiatrist in order to diagnose me and they said they diagnosed me bipolar I, I don't you know the one thing and I don't know if this is This is um, with all people who are diagnosed um, with depression. But there are gaps in my life that I don't remember. And most of the time, that was because I was severely depressed. So I know I remember suffering from depression. And I don't know what or why the manic phase that they said that I experienced was anything other than just,
1: you know overly being a teenager
0: so being, being a teenager <laughs> right <laughs> so so you know but it's true
1: <laughs> yeah i did an episode on this actually i've done a, a few episodes on this topic on my podcast back from the abyss but the one way to think of it is depression is a syndrome so it's not a diagnosis so depression is a final common pathway what can get you to depression um profound grief, hypothyroidism, pancreatic cancer, sexual abuse, uh, bipolar disorder, sleep disturbance, and on and on and on and on and on and on. So, so, you know, it really matters if people, for example, have what we call an endogenous depression. I mean, that expression is not used too much anymore. It was more of like 60s, 70s, but that's actually helpful, meaning do you have sort of a congenital genetic depression? And I think it's interesting to hear that your grandfather had bipolar because bipolar usually skips generations. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you had bipolar disorder, but that's strongly suggested that you might have because mm-hmm. the, the severe kind of bipolar or the, you know, the significantly the clinically significant bipolar tends to skip generations. Yeah. Um, so it really matters what's fueling depression because people come in and it's like, well, how long do I need to do this treatment? How long do I need to do ketamine? How long do I need to do Lamictal? You know, it, to me, the number one question is, well, what kind of depression do you have? Yeah. Do you have bipolar depression? Do you have a reactive depression to losing your job and having your girlfriend dump you and then getting evicted? You know, um, it really matters. So I think a lot of clinicians don't understand this and they think, oh, the treatment for depression is therapy and or meds. So it's like, well, what kind of, you know, that's like saying, you know, the treatment for leg pain is painkillers and PT. And I would say, well, w- what is causing the leg pain? Like, what do you mean leg pain? You know, major depressive disorder in many ways, I would argue is like saying leg pain disorder. Like, It's a it's a meaningless right. diagnosis that we throw around as if it means something, it means nothing.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I, and I know we have to wrap up. I love that you just said that, Craig, because it demonstrates who you are in terms of your humility. You have to be sort of the pinnacle expert, right, on mental health if you're in that role. And, and that can come with... Um, struggle to be more humble and then see the whole person versus just med management. And I just really deeply appreciate your humility. And I wanted to wrap up with a question sort of on that note, which is sort of my question I ask most people as we wrap up, which is what do you wish more people asked you, but don't? Mm.
1: Maybe what's the number one thing I can do to meaningfully shift the needle on how I think, feel, and function?
0: Oh, and?
1: (laughs) Go to bed the same time every night, get up the same time every morning, get up within an hour to hour and a half of sunrise.
0: Wow, that's a good one.
1: It's true. Like if there's anything that's the bedrock of mental emotional health it's sleep. And you know we learned that a long time ago but having done this now a long time I've lived it myself I've seen it with my patients. You know if you don't have regular nocturnal sleep with adequate slow wave and REM sleep you cannot feel and function well. You it's like the foundation of your house is cracked and leaking.
0: That would be you know I've often thought that uh, so when I did morning radio I was up before the sun every day right and then would go to bed at a certain time because i was getting up so early and i think you're right there is a there is something about that repetition that habit that makes you a highly functioning person um i don't do that anymore (laughs) maybe (laughs) i should
2: (laughs) yeah and i'll i'll help end on that note craig and i have talked about sleep hygiene is essential to our mental health and And our sexual health And our sexual health, right? And so I tell everyone I can (laughs) lay my hands on, please have sex when the sun is up. That's one of my game-changing rules. When the sun is up, have your sex, right? We're not nocturnal, right? We're more energized. We're more awake. We're more excited. Everything's flowing when the sun is up. Um, And then we can really collaborate to take care of our sleep and therefore our mental health when the sun is down.
1: Yeah, how sad and ironic that we save it for the end of the day. I mean, I love to run, as you know. Imagine if I only ran right before bed. (laughs)
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah. All
1: my runs be like, oh, you know, or if I only yes. read my favorite, whatever, if I only played guitar and sang right before bed, whatever, like whatever yeah. thing that's really meaningful to me. No, the stuff that's meaningful to us, we do it during the day, like, ooh, this is what I'm going to do. But sex gets shoved to the last thing right before bed.
0: Yeah. 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 Oh, well, I've always but said that long. morning sex is my favorite time to have sex. I'm, because by the time my day's over, I have no, there's nothing there. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that would put, I mean, I, that makes sense on any level of anything, any activity.
2: Yeah. Well, th- thank you. I want to thank both of you because Kim, you're super vulnerable and honest about yeah, your mental health thanks, journey Kim. today, which was just delightful to hear. And I know for listeners, you know, they just don't feel alone when they hear someone else describe their vulnerable journey so thank you
0: yeah and if you uh-huh. want to hear more, I do have a blog that i that I did um about that called uh, thirty one to fifty and um it talks a lot about my my bipolar journey and and just getting older and understanding you know things that I know now that I didn't know then
2: <laughs> and do it, we have show notes can that link you put in the show yeah notes? I can put I can will can also a link there yeah great and then in show notes we'll put Dr. Craig Heacock's podcast as well as yes website. I'm in a list not taking new patients but <laughs> it's still a valuable wow. resource out there and thank you okay, yeah thank, thank you it was a pleasure right? on and sharing your wisdom
0: and your love mm, it's good to be here. All right, thanks everybody. And uh, that's a wrap for this edition. Um, We will see you next time on the Modern Pleasure Podcast.